Hey, Bridgetown family, our annual Holy Spirit Conference is coming up at the end of this month. We're so expectant for what God's going to do during this sacred time. And there's still time to register to join us in person for just $100. You can do that at holyspiritco.me. And if you're not able to join us in person, you can join us via live stream for just 25 bucks. The live stream, of course, would allow you access to all of our sessions uh, live, but you could also watch them subsequently after the fact uh, if that is more helpful to you. However you're able to, we really hope that you'll join us. Has anyone seen the movie Past Lives? Wow, what a film. If it loses Best Picture to some Marvel remake or something like that, I'm honestly going to lose what little faith in Hollywood I've still got left. Anyway, there's this one scene in Past Lives where a married couple is lying in bed in their Manhattan apartment, and he's a Jewish guy from the city. She is a Korean-born immigrant who has lived in the States since she was 12 years old. And she speaks English most of the time, except when she's talking to her mom, when she returns to the Korean of her childhood. She's lived in America now longer than South Korea, and she's more Western than she, she is Eastern in many ways. But, as her husband explains in this scene, she sometimes talks in her sleep. And when she does, it's always in Korean. She dreams in her first language. When her mind is most free, when it can roam and imagine, it's always in her mother tongue. Eugene Peterson calls prayer the mother tongue of the spiritual life. When we are reborn into full life by the grace of God, we learn a new language, prayer, a way of communication with God that's just as natural as breathing. It's as unconscious as dreaming as we walk behind Jesus. And like our mother tongue, no matter who we become or what twists and turns are taken in our spiritual life, we never move on from it. A CIA translator who's fluent in a couple dozen languages will never be as, find any language as natural or as essential toward fluency in all of the others as she does her mother tongue. And I hope that you mature into many other spiritual practices in the narrow way behind Jesus, but I hope that you always think, and I know that you will always dream and always process and always filter every other spiritual practice through the first language of prayer. Unforced Rhythms of Grace. That's our, what we've titled our current teaching series. We started it last week, and over the coming nine Sundays as we gather together, we'll be looking at the nine core practices that make up Jesus' easy yoke. Nine embodied practices aimed at making my burden light and my soul rested. And up for today is prayer. We aim to become a community of communion with God in a culture of distraction and escapism through prayer. Every practice of Jesus is both formational and it's counterformational. In this life, in this world, we are not treading water in a lake, but a river, meaning that if all we do is tread water, we don't stay put, we are going somewhere where the cultural current is taking us. 
A spiritual practice is a way of swimming upstream against the current so that we get where we aim to go, not where we are passively being taken. And we start with prayer because it's the spiritual practice that holds all of the others together. Prayer is the relational center around which every other spiritual practice orbits. Or if you like, prayer is the soil that every other spiritual practice is planted in and grows within a life of prayer, a life of spiritual practice flourishes But apart from prayer, spiritual formation becomes warped, distorted, and deformed. Prayer is the first place that we learn to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. And so that'll serve as a grid for our exploration of this first practice. First, prayer is being with Jesus. Philippians chapter 4 Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This passage can be confusing, even disillusioning, because most people read it in a moment of heavy anxiety and then attempt to use prayer as a prescription to soothe their anxious symptoms. A quick chat with Jesus is meant to flood my anxious mind with an incomprehensible sense of peace, right? Well, sure, that is possible, and it does sometimes happen, because after all, Jesus is a miracle worker. But it's worth remembering that Paul offered this counsel from a jail cell where he was being held unjustly for a bogus charge, and unlike Peter's miraculous release, prayer did not deliver a miracle for Paul. And his counsel is to pray in every situation, not just when you're in the midst of a bout with anxiety. Prayer, generally speaking, does deliver peace, but it functions less like a prescription for the sick and more like a daily vitamin. What I mean is that peace is the intrinsic fruit, not the extrinsic fruit of prayer. Scientists Ed Decci and Richard Ryan coined these two terms for the two types of motivation for why any human being does anything. For instance, let's say that you jog in the morning three times a week and you do that because you love the way that it makes you feel and the wind in your hair and the energy that it delivers and the pop of endorphins first thing in the morning. That's an extrinsic, or I'm sorry, that's an intrinsic motivation for running. But if on the other hand, you begin jogging three times in the morning every week because you've booked a cruise and you wanna try to impress someone with your poolside physique, that is an extrinsic motive for running. Intrinsic motivation makes the act of running the end in itself. Extrinsic motivation makes running a means to another desired end. And both are okay, they're even good, But the research concludes that the activities that we pursue with intrinsic motivation are much more meaningful to us and they are easier to stick with over the long haul. Psychologists across the board use the term negative rumination to describe the magnetic pull of the human imagination toward fear. When you lay down to sleep at night, what's the last thought that buzzes through your head? Or when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thought that pounces on you? For the vast majority of people on the planet today, we either end or begin our days or both haunted by anxieties, resentments, and wounds. Put simply, fear is more constant than hope. Fear is the low, steady hum beneath all human experience. Hope is the occasional interruption. Our minds, when unoccupied and undirected, drift toward fear. 
an anxious fear of the future, like a project I'm behind on, or the conversation that I know I need to have but don't really want to have, or the event that I still don't have a plus one for, or a looming fear of the past, like a conversation I keep rehashing in my head because it didn't sit quite right, or a financial blunder that I'm still making up for, or a moral decision that I regret. For the majority of the human race alive today, the magnetic drift of the imagination is toward anxiety, regret, resentment, fear, in all of its varieties and paralyzing forms. Most people spend their whole lives trying to treat their negative ruminations through, uh, or their fears through self-perfection or circumstance perfection. The endless pursuit to get myself together or the endless pursuit to get my circumstances in order or both. We convince ourselves again and again that this one new life hack or habit or promotion or self-improvement is the key that will unlock my breakthrough. Prayer is not a way to magically remove all the symptoms of anxiety once they've pinned you to the ground. Prayer is a way of living daily in the presence of the God who is love, a perfect love who is stronger than our fear. As it says in 1 John, perfect love drives out fear. That is the intrinsic fruit, the first and constant discovery, the guaranteed multiplying result of prayer that too slowly for us to notice or measure, we learn the mechanics of living constantly in the presence of God's perfect love. The fruit of prayer, and this may surprise you at first, but the fruit of prayer isn't only about miracles and inspiring stories and divine action, even more than that. The fruit of prayer is about what happens when you're not actively praying. It's the way that prayer slowly but surely crowds out our negative ruminations until the last thought in the evening and the first thought in the morning is no longer about fear, but it's to peace. A peace that slows your inner life no matter what your obligations and interruptions you might be carrying outwardly. A peace that roots your identity in a more firm firm place than your most recent performance or the perception of someone else. A peace that comes from the communion of God who is perfect love that drives out fear. A peace that surpasses understanding. So how do we become people marked by the perfect love that breeds peace and not the fear or the hum of fear that breeds anxiety? Pray and pray consistently. On good days and on bad days, on a, uh, in the Monday morning grind and on a slow Saturday, in the midst of a pivotal decision and in the monotony of another midwinter week. Pray in every situation, less like a prescription and more like a daily vitamin. A life of prayer starts with a committed daily set aside time to practice conversation with God. You cannot create intimacy. You can only make room for it. And that holds whether you're talking about a marriage or a friendship or about God. Prayer can happen anytime, anywhere. It can happen while you're commuting or grocery shopping or at the gym or cooking dinner. Prayer can happen anytime, anywhere, but multitasking also tends to kill intimacy. If the only time a husband and wife ever spoke is while they were quickly passing or in the midst of doing something else, the ceiling on their intimacy would be kept pretty low. You can't know the God who is perfect love on the fly. So start with a daily set aside time and place for prayer. For most people it happens first thing in the morning, but there's nothing magic about first thing in the morning except that uh, we tend to be able to put things in that don't get crowded out by other circumstances or interruptions of the day first thing in the morning. So every morning I make a cup of coffee 
and I sit in a chair on my front porch and I set a timer on my phone for 10 minutes and then I hold open my hands and I pray, come Holy Spirit. And then I wait. And usually first, the many distractions and to-dos and work tasks, all the dust particles of my busy imagination need time to settle. And then sometimes a memory comes into my mind or a word or a phrase or a passage from scripture, sometimes a picture, oftentimes nothing at all. And after quieting my mind and uh, offering God the first word, I open the scriptures and I begin to read, jotting down whatever speaks more poignantly and personally to me from that day's passage. And then finally, I pray. And when I do pray, it always starts the same way. Jesus, today I hear you talking to me about. See, most people, they get their start in prayer by talking at God. A monologue aimed at the God who patiently and attentively listens. And that's just fine. That's a very good place to start. But it's also important that we mature beyond talking at God to eventually talking with God. A dialogue where we learn to perceive the Spirit's still small voice in the quiet of silent reflection and in God's written word and the activities of our day and the people that we we spend our day with. So when I pray, the first words of my prayer are always the same. Jesus, today I hear you talking to me about. And I pray while I'm walking in the park across the street from my house. I've always found it most natural to pray while walking. For other people, that would be distracting. For me, it just works. Psychologists call this kinetic processing, and it actually has the same or similar effect on the brain to the the common or becoming increasingly popularized form of therapy, ECT. Walking, for me, is where my thinking sharpens and my prayer gets deeper and more honest. So that's my daily vitamin, if you can bear the, or if you can take the unbearably cheesy illustration. It's the way that I set aside time for communion with the God who is perfect love that drives out all of my fear. And that's where prayer begins, being with Jesus. But that's not all prayer is. Prayer is both the place of intimate communion and it is the furnace of formation where I cooperate with God's transformation within me from the inside out. So prayer is also becoming like Jesus. Hebrews 5 says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So here is the way to pray like Jesus. Petition and submission. Now petition is a very particular type of prayer. It means asking God for what I need and what I want. Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven, which means something about God for sure, but it also means something about me. Jesus calls God Father and then goes on talking about himself dependently, as dependently on his Father as a small child is on a parent. John chapter five, very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. A few verses later, by myself I can do nothing. John eight, I do nothing on my own but speak just what the father has taught me. John 12, for I did not speak on my own but the father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And on the last night of his life, in John chapter 15, Jesus takes this helplessly dependent way that he's been living and talking about his entire life and then applies it to every one of his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
In the modern West, more than any other society at any other time in human history, we value independence, right? Move out of the house, make a way for yourself, go find yourself. These are the ideas and the narratives that have served as the bedrock of America and increasingly the narratives of the globalizing West. And that's all well and good, but it also means that for people who have been steeped in such a narrative, Jesus is teaching to know myself as helpless and dependent on God might be an even greater leap than Jesus is teaching to know God as Father. In my family of origin, I've been implicitly taught to admire my grandmother, whose fingers are bent from severe arthritis amplified by the daily grind of a textile factory for over 40 years. And my grandfather, who literally broke his back working construction all of his life. And my dad, who started as an accountant at the bottom rung of a car dealership and has ground his way up from there. The list goes on. Since the day I was born, I have been told an implicit story. Independence is admirable. Need should be eliminated. Hard work is what gets you there. And I do think that each one of those family stories is worth admiring. But I don't just get to leave my family of origin behind when I clasp my hands and say, dear God. And that presents a problem for my prayer life. Not a new problem, an ancient problem. The lie that unwound biblical paradise all the way back in Eden was, you will be like God. You will be without need, independent, unreliant. You will not be helpless, you will be helpful. You won't be a child anymore, but just like your father. That was the serpent's deception. Helplessness fuels prayer. Independence silences it. I remember when Hank, our oldest son, was born. I had just become a dad, but I kept on praying exactly the way that I did before, with the church that I pastored first and most constantly on my lips. I didn't pray much for my relationship to my children in the early years of their lives. And that wasn't because I didn't care about them. I cared so much. It's just that as a dad, I thought I mostly knew what to do. I didn't need help. I didn't pray much for my own children until that snowy March morning in Brooklyn when I realized just how helpless I really was. I was on the ferry commuting home from playing soccer with Hank on a Saturday morning. Hank sat next to me. Simon was in the stroller in the aisle. I couldn't get Hank to stop fooling around and then eventually he spilled his lunch all over the floor of the ferry and I lost my temper again. It was Saturday. I was supposed to be enjoying my boys and I didn't have the patience to hold it together. This wasn't the first episode like this, it was a pattern. This moment in particular is frozen in my mind because it was the straw that finally broke the camel's back. The moment that I realized that that the role that I had just assumed my whole life I would be good at, that's the moment that I realized I was helpless. And that's when I sought out a counselor and it's when I found that my children's names became the first in my imagination and the first off my lips each time that I prayed. That impatience and anger thing, it's not in me today like it was back then by the grace of God, but the helplessness that it uncovered, that's still in me in the very same way by the grace of God. Helplessness fuels prayer. So if you want to find out where you're believing the serpent's deception, just look for the part of your life that you tend not to pray much about. For the first 10 years of our marriage, I honestly didn't pray a whole lot about mine and Kirsten's union. Other couples pray together, but Kay and I have just always uh, done our own thing. That's just not how it works for us. Why not? Because we're not helpless. We know what to do. 
When problems arise, we communicate clearly and listen empathetically and then make adjustments. Until year 13, when we realized that resentments had built up so subtly, but they had calcified so solidly that our adjustments weren't working anymore. That a pattern of being had built up a debt and that things had gone unsaid and that, that grace was not the lens through which we viewed and related to one another. That's when I began to pray about my marriage as much as my parenting and it's when we found ourselves kneeling together at the foot of our bed praying together to begin each new day. And I never prayed a whole lot about friendship. Work needed prayer. Mission needed prayer. Friendship was just fun. That is, until Tim helped me put that, copper, that topper on my car a couple of years ago, and I realized that I'd constructed a life that had no room for real, true friendship. That if I keep on going the way that I'm already going, I might see the kingdom here and there, but I would miss out uh, on the greatest love of all to lay down one's life for one's friends. So if you are finding prayer inessential on the whole or in this or that part of your life, I would offer this simple reflection to you from my years of walking with the Father so far. Helplessness fuels prayer. It will either fuel prayer in fits and starts as you ping pong between situations that make prayer essential and then business as usual when the prayer is forgotten or it will fuel prayer constantly as you keep front of mind in the peaks, valleys, and long stretches in between that the truth is you are helpless. Helplessly out of control, helplessly unable to thrive, helplessly in need, no matter how it seems to be going today, you are helpless. And you can either live in the illusion of being occasionally helpless or the clarity of being constantly helpless. And the only reason that the latter is life and life to the full is because you have unrestricted access to a God infinite in power and love who will stop at nothing to help. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Vincent van Gogh is one of the most influential artists in recorded history. He also spent his short 37-year life apprenticing under Jesus of Nazareth. After an early foray into the fine art world, he chose instead to become a Christian missionary, devoting his life to serving the poor working in coal mines in southern Belgium. And one of my personal favorite works of Van Gogh's is this charcoal sketch that he did in 1882 during his missionary service. It depicts an old peasant coal miner from one of the villages where Van Gogh served. But it's really hard to tell if this man is exhausted or grieving or what's going on exactly. Until eight years later when Vincent chose to turn this out of all of his many surviving sketches into an oil painting. He painted this man's clothing blue from head to toe, his shirt, his pants, even his socks. And Van Gogh in all of his works famously used blue to represent the infinite. He went on to title the painting At Eternity's Gate, revealing that this man was not grieving or exhausted, he was praying. This peasant man on a humble wooden chair, warming himself by the evening fire, head buried in his hands in prayer, is accessing the infinite. He is approaching the gates of heaven. You see, Van Gogh's discovery was that in the ornate walls of his upbringing, he had learned the mechanics of prayer and the vocabulary of prayer in a way that these coal miners couldn't comprehend. But among those miners, he found a holy helplessness lacking in the ornate walls of his upbringing. Prayer comes by many expressions carrying a range of meanings and aims, but at its simplest and most straightforward, prayer is asking God for help. 
During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears. Jesus prayed often, he prayed emotionally, and he prayed about anything and everything. Strange as it sounds, it took God himself living helplessly to show us how to stop trying to be God-like. So the way to pray like Jesus is petition and submission. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. One of the distinguishing markers of prayer in the name of Jesus compared to the function of prayer in all other religions is that within the Jesus movement, prayer is primarily relational, not efficient. Jesus followers are people who will pray and not get the desired result back from their prayer, but then keep on praying, which is fundamentally inefficient. Buddhist prayer is an exercise to achieve a state of enlightenment. Muslim prayer is a ritual to remain within the favor of God. Christian prayer is a relationship aimed at developing intimacy with God. If you commit yourself to a workout routine or a diet or a professional development plan and find that you're not getting the results that you want at the pace you thought you'd be getting them, what do you do? You drop the routine and go looking for a more efficient plan. But relationships don't work that way. Friendship is the embrace of a person's strengths and weaknesses and their embrace of my own. If I drop a friend every single time a friend disappoints me, that'd be obviously dysfunctional and I would be pretty lonely. Marriage is fundamentally inefficient, but people across time and culture pursue it even today all over the globe. Job, the Psalms, the New Testament church, even Jesus all have moments on the pages of scripture when Prayer does not achieve the desired results they were after, and yet they all keep on praying to the Father. You see, the human heart longs for relationship, and prayer the Jesus way is distinctly relational, meaning the reward of prayer is not in the results, but the relationship. Scripture counsels us from beginning and end to seek God's face. Never once are we told to seek his hand. Relationships definitely come with reward, but the greatest reward, of course, is the relationship itself. And so Jesus prays submissively, stating bluntly on at least one occasion, yet not as I will, but as you will. The thing that keeps us praying in the wake of the disappointment that prayer sometimes leaves us with is not faith, it's trust. Faith is assurance of what you hope for. Trust is confidence in the character of God. And in my experience, trying to will faith into the equation does not make the possibility of my disappointment any less terrifying, but trusting the character of the listener definitely does. Trust allows us to say, I don't understand what God is doing right now, but I trust that God is good. What if I pray and the tumor still grows, or the rejection letter still comes, or the wedding's called off? The stories God writes in our lives will involve as much glory and as much suffering as they did in Christ's life. We will inherit miracles and cross-bearing alike. And we can submit our requests to the Father that we trust because we trust the end to which he is bending the whole of human history, collecting every prayer that I pray and every tear that I shed along the way as key ingredients to redemption. Prayer is not the place where I understand God's will and his ways perfectly. Prayer is the place where I learn to trust perfectly the character of God that I'm praying to. And confession is a practice of prayer that joins together petition and submission. Confession is where we both ask boldly and bow humbly at the same time. So I got off the ferry and I pushed Simon's stroller back to our apartment while Hank rode his scooter next to me. 
And I told Kirsten that I needed a minute, and after dropping the boys off, I drugged my feet down the sidewalk, and I prayed a defeated, helpless words of confession while tears glossed my tired eyes. I can't seem to be the father that I just always thought I would naturally become. I know that these are the glory days, that 10 or 20 years from now, I would trade anything for one more Saturday morning playing soccer with Hank or one more ferry ride with my little boys. But right now, while I'm actually living those moments, I can't seem to enjoy them to the full or even allow these little boys to enjoy them. Oh God, I am so sorry. I'm so desperate. I need your help. I need your grace. And that prayer of confession, that's not defeat. It's victory. Why? Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, says 1 John. Words spoken first to God as I drug my feet down the sidewalk, weeping in conversation with God, became conversation with both God and a therapist, and too slowly to calculate in the moment, but plain to me now in hindsight, those words were the raw material from which God refashioned me from the inside out. And today I am not the perfect father, but I am a much more helpless father, helplessly reliant on the very God who really is helping me enjoy the moments that I will forever wish to return to here today while I'm actually living them. And then finally, prayer is doing what Jesus did. Prayer is the depth of intimacy with God, it's the furnace of formation, and it is the hidden practice of power. The power of God's kingdom comes through, uh, through us just as it did through Jesus in two different forms, incarnated prayers and answered prayers. When Jesus taught us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he gave us six distinct movements that make up what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer today. The first half of the Lord's Prayer gets us in on God's world. The second half gets God in on our world. Your name, your kingdom, your will and then give us, forgive us, rescue us. It's your, 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 and then us, us, us. We inhale God's reality into our lives, and then we exhale God's reality into our surrounding world. And that tells us a whole lot about how God answers prayer. That sometimes God will move heaven and earth, bending space and time to weave a supernatural response to our prayers simply by the power of his right hand in response to our humble mumblings. But more often, seemingly his preferred method is to reform the heart of the praying person and then send them out in answer to their own prayers. The most powerful prayer is the incarnated prayer, meaning not only the prayer that you speak, but the prayer that you become. And Jesus lived by this rhythm. He withdrew into the wilderness to pray and then he returned to the city to preach the good news, heal the sick, and welcome the stranger. This is the rhythm that we see in the gospels of inhaling and exhaling. It's also the rhythm that marks uh, the order that every monastic order in church history has been shaped around. Dr. Jerry Sitzer says, the monks prayed for their work and then they worked out their prayers. So think of your workplace, whether that's an office or a restaurant or a classroom or home with the kids. Without work, without an environment to incarnate our prayers, prayer becomes a ritual of separation, when in reality, prayer is a ritual of invasion. 
summarized in Jesus' phrase, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Without prayer, a greater and broader perspective than what I've got going on today, our work inevitably becomes an idol. It's the environment that's got to hold the weight of my identity and my hope, inevitably crushing both. Prayer and action are both made whole by one another. Prayer is risky business because it's an invitation for God to act within me to bring about his kingdom through me. There's incarnated prayers, but God also responds to us by answered prayers. It's worth stating just really bluntly that the Bible, from cover to cover, is a book that insists on the miraculous. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture describes God breaking in, invading space and time, interrupting and disrupting the laws of nature. He's healing the sick and providing for the needy and delivering the oppressed. He's parting seas, opening jail cells, and pushing back tombstones. The philosopher Neil Van Leeuwen, he coined the term continual reality tracking for the way that children knowingly suspend their disbelief. Summarizing a whole series of studies, he explains that a child may make Play-Doh cookies and pretend to eat them and even ask you to sit down to a tea party with them. But if an adult sitting at a tea party with that child were to actually take a bite out of one of those Play-Doh cookies, it would startle the child, not please them. And many of us treat prayer like that. It's a conversation with God we enjoy, but it's also a conversation that we hold with low enough expectation that if our prayer were to really invade our world with heavenly fruit, it would startle us. For a church like ours with a whole lot of young adults and a city like ours, which is emotionally cold and sophisticatedly cynical, there may be no form of prayer that is more essential than bold, straightforward asking. Apart from giving God a chance to startle us awake, we're like those little kids with Play-Doh cookies, suspending disbelief to a degree but never really believing at the same time. We run the risk of diluting Jesus to fit our time and place rather than being formed by Jesus within our time and place. One of the most frequent prayers on my lips, a request that I hold before God very regularly, is that he would walk me right into power encounters, which is uh, language between me and God for encounters with his presence and power through the Holy Spirit, not in the safe confines of the church gathering, but out in the city where most of the experiences with the Spirit happen in the life of Jesus in the early church. I've prayed for power encounters for years. And then every once in a while, in late December, I took a lift ride home from a lunch meeting I got into the car and said, hey brother, how you doing? And then me and the driver just sat in silence for a couple of minutes as he took me home. And then out of nowhere, he just says, for months I smoked marijuana every day. I couldn't stop. I really wanted to, I tried to all the time, but I just couldn't. And then this guy got into my car and I told him about it and he didn't say anything back to me, he just listened. And when he was getting out of the car, he looked at me and said, I am sure you will not smoke today. And that was two months ago. And I haven't smoked ever since then. And even the smell of weed is detestable to me. And then he just stopped as abruptly as he had started telling me this. And so I said, okay, that's great, man. Why do you think you were able to make a change after talking to that guy? I think he prayed for me. I think you're right. 
What's your name? Muhammad. Where are you from, Muhammad? Afghanistan. Do you practice Islam, Muhammad? Yeah, I do. And then I asked him about his own prayer rhythms, if he observed the five prayer offices, if he carried a prayer rug around in his trunk while he drove his car. And then eventually, I said, Muhammad, who do you think that guy in your car prayed to? I think he prayed to Jesus. Yeah, I think you're right. Let me ask you a question. Why are you telling me all of this? And he said, when you got into my car, somehow I just knew that you know the same God that that guy prayed to. And I said, I do know that God. And by the time we got to my house, I was laying hands on my Lyft driver and I was praying that the kingdom would come and is in her life and that the God behind these prayers would be revealed to him. And then I said, hold on, I got a gift for you. And I ran into my house and I got my Bible and a copy of the book that I wrote on prayer. And I gave him my Bible and I told him, I didn't tell him I wrote the book. I just said, this is a book that has been really helpful to me. And he promised to read both of them and I blessed him and he was off. I tell you that story just so that you know that the greatest adventures of your life will begin with simple, bold requests uttered in prayer. Do not treat prayer like a child treats Play-Doh cookies. Pray to the God who hears and who loves to give good gifts to his children. Asking is the simple way of prayer that invites God's deep formation within me and releases his supernatural power into the world around me. So is there a practice from the way of Jesus that molds our praying lives into the image of our rabbis? Yes. There's a whole catalog of prayer practices found in, the biblical, in biblical and church history, but at Bridgetown, we have simplified it to two committed practice, practices, a prayer room, a radical memory-making way of prayer, and a daily prayer rhythm, which is a day-in, day-out, sustained way of ordering our praying lives through various forms of prayer. You should Think of a daily prayer rhythm like a food guide pyramid, which offers general guidance for spiritual health and feeds us a balanced diet. And the Bridgetown Church daily prayer rhythm is a simple commitment to pause and pray three times a day, just like most of us pause to eat three times a day. In the morning to pray the Lord's Prayer, at midday to pray for the lost, and in the evening to pray gratitude. And this is a way of prayer that holds together all of the practices that I've been naming in this teaching. And because our prayer room is currently open to anyone and everyone, this week in our Bridgetown communities, we are going to engage the practice of the daily prayer rhythm working it into our lives, experiencing the intimacy, the formation, and the power of praying the Jesus way. Prayer is the central spiritual practice because unlike the others, it doesn't expire. 1 Corinthians 13 says that one day prophecy will cease when we meet Jesus face to face. One day we won't fast anymore because we will always and forever be feasting with the bridegroom. And we won't need solitude when peace is uh, not the exception in a world of chaos, but it's the water that we're forever swimming in. We won't need to witness to Jesus as Lord when every knee is bowed and every tongue confessed. And we won't need Sabbath once a week when eternal rest is every day. Prayer, though, our first language, our mother tongue, is the language that we will never stop speaking. Prayer is the practice of communing with the Father face to face. It is rehearsal for eternity. It is paradise now. 
We hold a, a covenant as a staff that we recite every week where we say prayer is not the way, it is the destination. But maybe an even better way of putting it is prayer is both the way and it's the destination. Prayer is the soil where every other spiritual practice grows. It is the seed that is hidden away and unseen that grows spiritual fruitness. It is the practice or the place that we inherit stories that we will never stop telling. When I tuck my children into bed at night, I almost always pray, God, let my ceiling in prayer become their floor. And that's my prayer for you, Bridgetown Church. That if there's one thing that I have gathered up in my years of walking behind Jesus that I could offer you, it's this. To make prayer the center that your life orbits around. And then to live out of discipline until that discipline becomes desire. There's nothing more important, nothing more eternal, nothing more healing and loving, nothing more wild and adventurous than the conversation that we begin with God that will never end.